church, congregation of victims. Uh, because at the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, what we're trying to do and trying to do at Westminster is to convince people once again that the Word of God is sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness. That uh, there are a lot of other useful things in the world, uh, internal combustion engines, computers, uh, you know, cocoa puffs, other things that the world finds very useful and uh, valuable, uh, but that we really only need the Holy Spirit's using the Word of God uh, to convert us and to sanctify us and actually make us, as it says in Second Peter, partakers of the divine nature. And it's not only sufficient for that, it's the only thing, and anything that gets in the way combats that. And without going to a long spiel, um, if you haven't been around, just talk to your friends that claim to be Christians in terms of what they hear preached, uh, what they get in the counseling room, and how people try to change their lives. And you'll begin to find out that the church truly has become a therapeutic church, a congregation of victims, and uh, preaching becomes nothing more than a giant uh, group therapy session. So this is a nation of victims to reflect on uh, where the United States is, where we're going, and just how the church fits into that. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing and them to die, to sleep no more. And by a sleep to say we end these, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep. To sleep? Perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? It must give us pause. Those words of Hamlet ring in our ears. For the testing of suffering, the tough times that come, really bring out the character of our heart. Hamlet's was that of a victim. Suicide was the prominent answer. Hamlet, the ancient existentialist, Live, die, what's the difference? But he realized that to die might bring problems. You know, the whole character of the United States, Western Europe, Canada, particularly the United States, has changed. We view ourselves now as victims, not victors. Like so many hamlets, we vacillate between bitterness and revenge on the one side and suicidal self-pity on the other. We still lip-sync grand words at ballpark, right? Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. You know, you know that whole first verse, but often people don't go on to sing the rest of it. There's four stanzas and two of the next two say, on that shore dimly seen through the mist of deep where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes. What is that which the breeze or the towering steep as it fitfully blows now conceals and discloses? Now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam in full glory reflecting now shines on the stream. Tis the star-spangled banner along may it wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion a home and a country should leave us no more? Their blood was washed out 
their foul footsteps pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. We don't hear words like that anymore. Ah, the land of the free has become the land of the free ride. And the home of the brave has become the brave new world where the government heals all and all heal to the government. Individuals, families, and churches, local governments all fall into the mentality we're victims and the state will save us. Beloved, I don't believe on any fair reading that the United States ever was a Christian nation. I don't think it was. It's profoundly influenced by the gospel. But it's never been a Christian nation. Why? That may sound like a covenanter now, but she's never sworn allegiance to King Jesus. Our nation has never acknowledged that there is but one true and living God and Jesus Christ as His Son. And in Western culture, the battle between the Protestant Reformation's gospel and its world and life view and... Uh, Pagan, humanist, pagan humanism that started in the Renaissance Enlightenment and comes to full bore now as everyone talks about you know, uh, uh, humanism as, a, as a, a world in life view, and it is. That battle's always been there, beloved. The church has always had to battle against it. Now, the church, by God's grace, won the battle against medieval Catholicism. The battle was won, and salvation by grace alone and that's what, why we love to be called Reformed because that Protestant Reformation won that battle. But liberal Protestantism that came alongside of after the Reformation, like so many cultural termites, ate the heart out of our culture and ate the heart out of the Gospel. The Puritan vision that we had was transmuted into what we see today where you can hardly walk down the street and say that you're born again Christian without getting snickering, if not mild persecution. There's a book, I don't recommend it as a Christian book per se, but a guy named Charles J. Sykes, who is a, a, a conservative think tank person, has written a book called A Nation of Victims, The Decay of the American Character. There's a lot of people who have written on this. It's an extensive analysis of the American character. And I'd like just to read some quotes from it. He wrote two other books called Prof Scam and the Hollow Men, both about the educational system, the higher educational system, how it's failing in the United States. Now, he, he says in his preface this, this book has its origins in my previous explorations into higher education, especially my encounters with those odd permutations of political correctness that can be found on so many uh, American university campuses. As anyone who has spent much time on campus these days knows, it's almost impossible to debate any issue of weight without running up against the politics of victimization. Its legacy is the tone of shrill intolerance and the ethnic division described, among others, in Dinesh D'Souza's The Illiberal Education. But this tone of debate is not limited to universities. Increasingly, it seems to pervade American society. And he points out a lot of areas, common areas. You know, most of you are not really concerned about you know, the universities, etc., etc. Some of you or finishing up college. And for most of you, this is, you know, you know, for your young kids, this is probably over your head in the sense that you don't, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get out of elementary school. You know, you don't care about university, okay? But it's everywhere you go. You can turn on the television, Bart Simpson, you know, anything. You know, you can turn on Fresh Prince or anything. Whatever you turn on, 
and people are victims going to therapy. Now, in his prologue, Scenes from the Zeitgeist, a big way of saying scenes from the culture, he says this, interesting. An FBI agent embezzles $2,000 from the government and then loses it all in an afternoon of gambling in Atlantic City. He's fired but wins reinstatement after a court rules that his affinity for gambling with other people's money is a handicap and thus protected under federal law. True. Sykes says that the court, of course, should have described him as differently abled. (laughs) Fired for consistently showing up late at work, a former school district employee sues his former employers, arguing that he is a victim of what his lawyer calls chronic lateness syndrome. In Framington, Massachusetts, a young man steals a car from a parking lot and is killed while driving it. His family then sues the proprietor of the parking lot for failing to take steps to prevent such thefts. This will crown it for you. A man who by his own admission had exposed himself between 10,000 and 20,000 times and been convicted of flashing on more than 30 occasions, is turned down for a job as a park attendant in Dane County, Wisconsin, because of his arrest record, but sues. But sues on the grounds that he has never exposed himself in a park, only in libraries and laundromats. (laughs) Wait, it's not over. Wisconsin employment officials, ever accommodating to the expansion of human rights, agree and make... An initial determination of probable cause that the flasher was the victim of illegal job discrimination. I can read others, but uh, I'm in there. He says this elsewhere. Something extraordinary is happening in American society. Crisscrossed by invisible tripwires of emotional, racial, sexual, and psychological grievance, American life is increasingly characterized by the plaintive insistence, I am a Victim. The victimization of America is remarkably egalitarian. From the attics of the South Bronx to the self-styled emotional roadkills of Manhattan's Upper East Side, the mantra of victims is the same. I am not responsible. It's not my fault. You can pick up the book if you want. He goes through and he analyzes a society of victims and uh, the root of victimization, the high noon of victimization where civil rights movement and other things changed in the country. Now there's new victims. New victims. Uh, some of the subtitles uh, of chapter 11. Are we all sick? The abolition of sin. Not guilty, just sick. Chapter 12. Pick a disorder, any disorder. And then he goes into politically correct victim and the dead hand of victimization. It's real interesting. Let me just give you one or two other illustrations of what he points out. He's talking about how uh, in the 70s and 80s, increasingly, ghetto kids started coming up with excuses of why they were bad that sounded very, very much like sociologists and psychologists. And, And this is a little section of explaining why these kids are victims and not victimizers. And it goes like this. 
While there are some ideas so bizarre that only a tenured professor of sociology could believe them, such notions had legs. Given the poor quality of their education, ghetto youngsters should have been immune from the influence of such advanced social science as well as from the larger cultural transformation in the country. But, writes Nathan Glazer, one could hear from young delinquents the very explanations and excuses that social psychologists and sociologists were making for behavior that damaged society and themselves. And then he goes into a section uh, later on that is just too rich to go over, but I'll have to skip some of it because it's too graphic. He talks about uh, uh, Two Live Crew, you know, the uh, rap group. When they are not celebrating the domination and humiliation of women, the lyrics of groups like Two Live Crew are often an endless recapitulation of pornographic fantasies. What they lack in originality, they make up in Catholicity. And then he reads a, a quote from a federal judge that's just too gross for me to, to really uh, uh, go on. He says, The obscenity itself would not, of course, shock any of the cultural cognoscenti who pride themselves on their unshockability and broad-mindedness on issues of sexuality. But the constant refrain about slapping black bitches who won't put out should have been another matter altogether. It wasn't. In this glossary of political correctness, Louis Lampham writes, Victims always and forever innocent, embrace them. So rather than denouncing as slanders on black culture the ugly vileness that such groups were peddling, columnist Tom Wicker rushes forward to defend Two Live Crew's work as containing, quote, quintessentially black lyrics. Eager to place rap in its rightful place in the pantheon of avant-garde culture, John Perales, a music critic for the New York Times, opines, Put simply, rap is an affirmation of self. Rappers live by their wit, their ability to rhyme, the speed of their articulation, and by their ability to create outsized persona through words alone. Perales manages to find an assistant professor of anthropology willing to insist, the skills you need to be a good rapper are the same skills you need to get ahead in mainstream society. Rap is about making something of yourself. It's the American dream. Anyone dreamed about being a rapper? <coughs> candy wrapper maybe, but uh, <laughs> most ambitious of all is Harvard's, not shabby place, huh? Henry Louis Gates Jr., a leading guru of multiculturalism. Drawing on all his erudition as an Oklahoma culture critic, Gates insists in an op-ed piece in the New York Times that Two Live Crew was really engaged in sexual carnivalesque. Far from celebrating vicious and barbaric misogyny, uh, Gates writes that two live crews engage in heavy-handed parody, turning the stereotypes of black and white America, American culture on their heads. For centuries, he says, American, Afro-Americans have been forced to develop coded ways of communicating to protect from danger. So their exuberance use, uh, exuberant use of hyperbole is merely a legacy of this allegorical style. While he dismisses the so-called obscenity, not even Gates can pass over the group's overt sexism. But in a twist that must be described as Orwellian, Gates turns the sheer nastiness of the group, uh, group sexual violence, into a denial that they are really sexist. In a paragraph that only a tenured professor of English could write, Gates presents this tortured apologia. Their sexism is so flagrant, however, that it almost cancels itself in hyperbolic war between the sexes. In this, it recalls the intersexual jousting of Zora Neale Hurston's novels. 
Having slurred Hurston's memory, Gates proceeds to turn the rappers into martyrs of racism. With his own heavy-handedness, Gates warns, censorship is to art what lynching is to justice. While the efforts to censor two live crew are perhaps misguided, says Sykes, Gates' defense is rank sophistry. No one would dare to suggest that an Italian involved in child porn was engaged in sexual carnivalesque that grew out of the Italian-American immigrant experience. No one has come forward to defend the vile so-called humor of comedian Andrew Dice Clay, who also specializes in attack on women as quintessentially Jewish. Nor is it plausible to argue that there is anything at all carnival-like about the brutality of these anthems. In a bizarre intersection of art and reality, the young men involved in the wilding attack on the Central Park jogger chanted the lyrics to Wild Thing after their arrest. Now, I won't read more quotes. I have a lot more. I have more time at the Institute. But Sykes goes on to show that uh, defending this kind of stuff wasn't new. new. Really, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, Black Panthers, did things like that. And um, he goes on to quote Herbert Schlossberg, who was a Christian, about the problem of victimization and victimhood. He said, it always leaves a person in that state, and they can never change. There's no hope. Once a victim, always a victim. And the price you pay for getting payment from the government for therapy and everything else, its largest, for being a victim of this, that, or the other thing, is the fact that you always remain a victim. Now, uh, just one more uh, to start a quote. Uh, Social myths can have their tragic consequences. Being wrong about the source of society's problems is only the start. And he talks about Ava Etazoni Halvey, uh, a sociologist who criticizes the intellectuals in general and other academic types like her in specific, saying, you know, the bottom line is this, all the time and money we've spent, and the more studies we do, guess what? The worse things get worse. Things get worse and worse and worse. She says it should start to occur on us as intellectuals and people who try to tell everybody else how to live it's not working. He says, but there's this tremendous blindness. And Sykes, interestingly enough, very conservative, I don't know if he's a conservative Roman Catholic or Protestant, or whatever he is, doesn't come out at all in the book. He points to anti-poverty. He talks about all kinds of uh, things. You know, American intellectuals have been in love with Marxism for a long time. While the rest of the world is falling apart, and everyone else is going, let's get rid of Marxism and let's bring in McDonald's and you know, everything else. Uh, you know, they still want to go back to it. Now, it's interesting. His, his summary, and I want to end here with that kind of an introduction. Um, the principle behind the programs that he proposes at the end of the book is simply this. Start treating people, instead of victims and clients of therapy, start treating them as citizens. Citizens with responsibilities. Okay, it's a fun book to read. It's interesting. You know, uh, but in the long run, Sykes, you know, his analysis does not penetrate deeply enough into why America is going bad. Nor are his good solutions adequate. The real need to treat people as citizens, that's true. That's true. But even more, we need to treat them as sinful citizens who need a Savior. And beloved, if there's anything that we need in America, it's the gospel. We want to get to that before the end tonight. 
But how did we get here? Now, this may not be accurate. This is only Scipione's analysis, but I really believe that there's some truth, truth to this. The church has lost its biblical vision and character. It's that plain and simple. The salt is no longer salty. You see, the Puritans had a vision. It wasn't shared by everyone that came to the United States, but the Puritan vision was this, of the new world being a city set on a hill. They really thought of themselves, and there may be all kinds of problems in working it out. You may not agree with that, 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 that Puritan vision, but they really saw themselves, in a sense, as the church, the new Israel, to set up a new government for what purpose? To be a witness to the world of the Savior. It was that clear and conscious. They wanted that. But as Reformation theology began to degenerate, the 1600s here, okay, by the end of the, in the end of the 1700s, and even when we're getting to the to the to the Revolution, the American Revolution, you know what's happened? Reformation theology turned into Unitarian Pelagianism. It just that's what happened. There was that transformation. And you know what happened? Being a city on a hill was changed into what? Manifest destiny, if you know your history courses. My country, right or wrong. God has called this to be a special nation. But not the triune God of the Bible. Just some generic God up there who wants good things and civilization to come to people. That's what happened. And, and, and then when we got manifest destiny and Unitarianism and kind of moralism in the 20th century got transmuted into what? Psychic determinism of Freud. So everybody is, is determined by their inside energies and everybody becomes a victim of mom and dad and grandmom and this, that and the other thing. And we don't sin because we're sinners. We are sinning because we are a land of victims in need of therapy. So what's the church do? Well, you know what liberalism did. Liberalism just basically took over the mindset of the world. Liberalism was nothing but secularism with a few Christian words on it. And what was the response to that? Fundamental, <clears throat> fundamentalism, by and large, even though it's Bible-believing, they're real Christians, <clears throat> fundamentalism basically said, hey, we're getting raptured out of here. We're being raptured out of here. And, and it, you know, why polish brass? It was an actual saying. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? Get real. We need to see people saved, and that's true. So fundamentalism, and what happened? In the, 19, in the end of the 1940s, the beginning of the 50s, by and large, evangelicalism began to develop. There were people that still believed in the Bible, believed that it was God's Word, and people needed to get saved. But where did they go to get their education? They said, the ship isn't going to sink so fast. And we've got to be involved in culture. NAE, National Associating Angels, where, where they, they all went to secular universities, got their secular degrees, and came back to Christian schools and did what? They taught secularism with a few Bible verses on it. And by and large today, if you look at the, the general evangelical community, it doesn't believe in the infallibility of Scripture. It certainly doesn't believe in a sovereign triune God that elects people. Huh? That, that, that's what happened to American Christianity, and that's why we are where we are. Don't you see? In short, the church became worldly or otherworldly. Now, you can, you can hear the books that you should get and read. I mean, Francis Schaeffer, The Great Evangelical Disaster. It's a little outdated, but still good. J.D. Hunter, a sociologist, wrote two books, The Quandary of Modernity, Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation. And he traces how 
belief in creationism, literalness of the Bible and other things got changed in evangelical seminaries, Wheaton, other places. The country began to change. Uh, Herbert Schlossberg, Idols for Destruction, Michael S. Horton, Made in America, The Shaping American Evangelicalism. Some of you know him, he's the head of Cure. Oz Guinness, Dining with the Devil. David Wells, No Place for Truth, Into, uh, in, into the Wasteland. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, Reckless Faith, Ashamed of the Gospel. And a, a very different little book, but Jay Adams' book of uh, about 10, 15 years ago, A Call for Discernment. Just in short, why do we get where we are in America? It's not the other guy's fault. It's your fault and my fault. It's the church's fault. Why? The church in large is savorless salt. Loving social science more than the Savior and holy laughter more than holy hearts. And a savorless church creates a savorless society. A savorless, a saltless church creates a savorless society. Society. Well, what's the solution? The same good old gospel that's been preaching 1900 years. The church needs to recapture the gospel of the Savior and the kingdom and not be ashamed of it. The church needs to depend on God's word, wisdom, and counsel, not on the wisdom and, and, and words of, uh, of the uh, cultural elite and the traditions of social science. That's, social science, by and large, beloved, uh, that's where I work. Social science, by and large. You can set up. Psychology replaces biblical or pastoral counseling and discipleship. Sociology begins to control church growth. And cultural anthropology begins to define and direct foreign missions. And so the church, in a great screw tape letters end run, gets to be dining with the devil. The church not only needs to recapture the gospel of the Savior and love Him and needs to lean on the Word and not man's wisdom, the church needs to live, and this is where we're going to deal with this in 1 Peter, we need to live as models of suffering servants victimized by the world's hatred. And I put it in those words so you can capture. We need to live in 1 Peter. We need to live as suffering saints just as Jesus did. And we need to live that way in front of a watching world And we need to be uh, victims, as it were, willful victims of the world's hatred so that, as John 12 says, like a grain of of wheat will go into the ground and will produce. You and I, beloved, can't produce anything apart from Christ and we won't produce anything in Christ if we're not willing to be buried, dead, and be raised again. That's what we have. Finally, the church needs to be willing to disciple victims until they learn to become victors. Now let's look at these real briefly, each of these. Uh, The church needs to be salt and light and recapture the Gospel. Let me just read a passage for each of these with very minimal uh, uh, comment on it because you know them very well, but I think it will make the point. Now chapter 5 of Matthew, I'll be reading from the New American Standard uh, Version, uh, NESV. Uh, chapter 5. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, What? Happy or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Not people who believe they've got it together, like humanism. The church cannot believe it has it. It must believe that we are poor, naked, and blind apart from Christ. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, the world says be happy. The be happy attitude, some people call this. Okay? To protect the heretics, I won't mention them by name. Okay, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. If you're not, uh, there's no repentance, there's no joy. Blessed are uh, the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those that play by God's rule, even if they suffer for it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, so they receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. We'd say single-minded today. Uh, focused. The pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Do not men light a lamp, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, that's the kind of life the church needs to live. The church needs to live that the world will see it. Secondly, I think the world needs to see a church of all amazing things acts like what? The church. What in the world is the church? 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul really says this very succinctly here. Do not neglect... First uh, Timothy three fourteen through sixteen. Okay, got the wrong chapter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Beloved, the church needs to be about telling the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, Christians, and, and, and we've been told, and we're right, the, the Reformed view tells us we need to be involved in all of life, every phase, including politics. I'll mention that briefly later. But the fact of the matter is the church's business is being the church, of getting the truth about Jesus Christ who was incarnate, who lived a perfect life, died a death, and was nailed to the cross, was raised on the third day, was seen on in the world, has been at the right hand of God and Father Almighty. That's what the church needs to do. It needs to be preaching the gospel, and it needs to live out its life, getting that truth to others. Third thing, not only does the church need to be salt and light, and not only does the church need to 
really get the truth out. The church needs to become willing victims suffering like Christ. I don't have a lot of time tonight, and I won't do it. We'll get through the whole book of 1 Peter, Lord willing, this week. What's the whole book about? That the way you and I conduct ourselves under pressure is one of the key one of the key things that shows people what we're really like. And if we come up thinking, acting, and speaking like Jesus when we're being persecuted, yes, even to martyrdom, that is the testimony that God wants. In a day and age when there are true, there are true victims, kids do get molested. Kids do get beaten up at home in certain homes. There are wicked things, but beloved, they happen in Paul's day and Peter's day also. Don't think that the first kid that ever got molested or beaten up you know, lived in the 20th century. The gospel is still the answer for the victim. But the victim will not see that reality nor the perpetrator until they see someone who, like Jesus Christ, who could stand in front of Pilate and say, you couldn't lay a finger on me if it wasn't so ordained. I lay down my life willingly to take it up again. Now, we're not a Savior to die for anybody, but as First Peter will tell us, you can suffer like Christ, and that is a powerful, powerful testimony. You see, let me, let me tell some of you ditto heads out there. Now, Rush Limbaugh may be right, but he's not righteous. And Rush Limbaugh will not save the United States. Only Jesus Christ and the Gospel will. You need a righteousness that far exceeds that of the Pharisees, let alone Rush Limbaugh. The church needs to teach victims how to be victors in Christ. And for that, I won't go into long detail. Read the whole book of Romans. Read the whole book of Romans. Okay, That's the issue. The issue is, when you're justified by faith, and you're sanctified by faith, and you know that the sovereign God has elected you unto salvation, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know what victims need? They need to hear Romans 8. If He would not spare His own Son, how could He help possibly hold back anything that you need? Are you kidding? It's ludicrous to think that God would nail His Son to the cross for your justification pour out the Holy Spirit for your sanctification and to change you and that God would then dump on you? No. That's why Paul says, I don't care what it is, height or depth, demons or angels, life or death, I am convinced there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when you have that, yea, we are more than conquerors. And in the early church, there were not many rich, many noble, not many famous. When are we going to learn that you don't take some jock that just got converted, possibly three weeks ago, and you put him on some national TV talking about a Jesus that he could hardly spell, let alone know? Let's get the little old ladies with the calluses on their knees, okay? Let's get them on national television. We need to hear Romans 8. Now let me finish. You know, I said I would try to be brief. We must have the mind of Christ, beloved. If we start thinking like the world, 
Okay, remember the old saying? If it looks like, walks like, quacks like a duck, it's a pig, right? No, 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 it's a duck. So I mean, if the church looks like, walks like, quacks like, goes to therapy like the, uh, the world, you know? you know what we need? We need to be like Jesus in the garden. Victim, huh? Peter's blowing off ears and he's picking them up and putting them back on. Remember, he did that. Doesn't that amaze you? I know me. I'd be going, yeah! Get the other side! Okay? That's why I'm not the Savior, see? Put up the sword, Peter. A victim? We need to be Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Why'd you slap me? And if I said anything wrong, you know, servant of God shouldn't be speaking like that. Pilate, we can only do the Father's will, the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like Joseph, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like Stephen. Stephen dies. He's a sinner. I always get that in counseling. Well, we want, that's Jesus. He's God. Okay, let's try Stephen. Okay, he was a sinner like you, and look how he died. Father, don't lay this charge to their account. Great sermon. Got killed for it. That's what Jay always says. Those early preachers, they always got results. Conversions? <laughs> or they got killed, but they got results, okay? Nobody ever sat in the pews, okay? okay? When we have the mind of Christ, beloved, we'll be in the world, but we will be not of the world. Let me say this secondly, in closing. You must resist, uh, the church must resist the revolutionary urge to revolt against authority. You've got, you got to hear this. Okay, I'm still trying to work out the American Revolution to justify it. We've got to be very careful as Christians, okay? Because it's fleshly, it's satanic. It's, I believe it's James 3. It's taking the flesh to try to accomplish God's ends. Jesus, Paul, Peter warn against this. And let me say this. Attempts to skip the cross to get to the crown are cursed. Every attempt to try to get to the crown like Jesus has right now, to that glorified state, Without the cross, it won't work. It won't work. The Garden of Eden, has God said? The wilderness, skip the cross. Straight to the crown. False worship and effort. Garden of Gethsemane. No, your will, not mine. All revolutions, let me say, all revolutions without the cross and the blood of Christ are satanic substitutes. Yeah? All revolutions without the cross and the blood of Christ are satanic substitutes. The church can't escape the foolishness and embarrassment of the cross, beloved. And Robert Schuller and others want to. You cannot. And beloved, it's happening in Reformed churches. It's happening in Reformed churches where people are ashamed of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can denigrate fundies all you want. Okay? And it may not be the best hymn that's ever been written, you know, you know, you know the old rugged cross. But when the church becomes ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ, you know why? Because all such bloodless revolutions lead to new repression and bondage. Former victims become the new victimizers. You ever understand it? Who was worse, the czars or the Bolsheviks? Huh? Who was worse, colonialism or the president? There have been more people killed in the 20th century and probably by communist regimes than anyone else. Who was worse, slave owners or the Black Panthers? be a toss-up. Black Panthers were not real nice guys. And, of course, you know, if you want to kill male chauvinist pigs and become a female chauvinist pig, that's your prerogative. You know why? No cross, no forgiveness. We must believe the gospel. 
God says we are victims of the world. Yes, that's true. In a way, beloved, the gospel is really contradictory, or seemingly contradictory. We are victims, aren't we? The world, the flesh, and the devil do destroy us. But guess what? Does God ever say, poor little victims? Sorry, guys. See, let's wait out here. You got dumped on more than you got, you know, sin, so we'll take you to heaven. No, God doesn't work that way, does He? God holds us accountable for our sins, not the sins of the other guy. And when the church remembers that, okay, things will start going right. Our big problem, Jesus says, is not sins against us, but our sins against God. You ever notice that? That's the problem that's the center of the Scriptures. Not what other people have done to me. And people have dumped on me. Not even what I've done to other people. What does David say? After he killed a man to cover a pregnancy against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. God says, your sins against me. And beloved, I'm pleading with you as Reformed people, don't throw away your Reformed heritage for a bunch of evangelical slop and porridge. Don't take a man-centered gospel and man-centered methods to accomplish God's end. It won't work. Only the cross of Christ is the only answer for the victimizer and victimizer. Now I end here. What will turn a nation around and turn us from a nation of victims into victors? Really this. Let me go back and read the last verse of Francis Scott Key's the Star-Spangled Banner. Listen, listen to the theme. Oh, thus be it ever where free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, and God is our trust. And the Star-Spangled Banner in triumph shall wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. You know why he could write that verse? Because it's in the, at least it's in the Trinity hymnal. Because the same man wrote this. Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise thee for the bliss thy love bestows, for the pardon and grace that saves me and the peace that from it flows. Help, O oh God, my weak endeavor, this dull soul to rapture raise. Thou must light the flame or never can my love be warmed to praise? Cross appear. Praise thy Savior God that drew thee to that cross, new life to give, held a blood sealed pardon to thee, bade thee look to him and live. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee, rouse thee from a fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. Lord, this bosom's ardent feeling, vainly would my lips express. Lo, before thy footstool kneeling, deign thy suppliant's prayer to bless. Let thy love my soul's chief treasure, love's pure flame within me raise, and since words can never measure, let my life show forth thy praise. When our nation can sing that hymn from its heart, we'll no longer be a nation of victims, we'll be a nation of victors. Why? Because the church will be salt and light and our land will be the land of the free, free in Christ. And our homeland will be the home of those who are brave before God's throne, who can be brave before tyrant and heretic alike.
because the Savior has conquered sin and death, we will then not be whining or raging with Hamlet. We'll be crying with the Apostle Paul. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Beloved, you know that your labors are not in vain because the resurrection is true. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the most, at least to me and for many Christians, the most unpalatable part of our commission to live like you and for you, this issue of suffering, we pray, Lord God, that you will teach us what it is to suffer for the gospel's sake and not our own obnoxiousness and how to do it in a way that will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, our land is going to hell in a bucket and no amount of government money, no amount of military activity or political action will ever save the United States. Lord, we need a third great awakening. Lord, we need an awakening and a revival that will start in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ where we of all people will at once tremble before you, fall before you, and hear the pardon of grace again and again. And then so live that, Lord, the people around us will taste of that salt and see our light and will want the Savior as you draw your elect to yourself. Father, give us a real heart to study the devotionals and to study through the book. And Lord, I I plead with you, be gracious to give us an unusually good week of prayer, Bible study, and growth. For those, Lord, who do not know you, we pray you may give them new hearts. And for those of us who may have become dull in our love for you, may we again be victors in Christ and give up, Lord, the old sinful victimization that keeps us forever bondage to sin. Thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen.